Our speaker today, and I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because he's Scottish and he can do it and I can't, is William Dalmaple. Well, that was terrible. Um, he's the best-selling author of Inexandu, From the Holy Mountain, The Last Mughal, and most recently, Nine Lives. He has won many awards, including the Thomas Cook Travel Book Award, the Hemingway Prize, the Wolfson Prize for History, and the Scottish Book of the Year Award. In, 2002, in 2012, he was appointed Whitney J. Oates Visiting Fellow in Humanities at Princeton University. He lives with his wife and three children, a good ways from here, on a farm in Delhi. Um, today, he will speak to us about the history of the world's most famous diamond, the Kohinoor. Please join me in giving a warm welcome to William Darmichael. So, two, two small corrections. It's, it's uh, Durimple. <laughs> and not the world's most famous diamond, although it possibly is, but the world's most infamous diamond is the title. Uh, for reasons that will become apparent, um, I hope, over the next hour. The Koinor uh, is a diamond which, rather like the ring of power in, uh, in Lord of the Rings, uh, is an object much desired, and which has a history of creating division, dissension, murder, and bloodshed wherever it goes. And uh, it's a very enjoyable prism through which to look at a great slice of South and Central Asian history. Um, because wherever it has gone, it has been uh, sort of dragged into the center of power. Uh, and... Uh, there uh, resulted in some uh, spectacular mayhem that makes Game of Thrones look like a, a parlor game or a, uh, a trip to the, a picnic in the park. Um, even today, sitting as it now does in the Tower of London, attached to the uh, crown of the Queen Mother, uh, there are six outstanding uh, legal claims to it by other countries. Uh, most obviously, India, from whose alluvial sands the diamond once emerged. Pakistan, uh, within whose territory it uh, resided for much of its uh, more recent history. Uh, Bangladesh, which has no discernible claim in it other than the fact that they don't want Pakistan to have it. <laughs> um, Iran, where it also spent some time in the 18th century. Uh, Afghanistan, uh, where it provided some of the capital, in a sense, for the founding of the country, a story we'll hear later on. And perhaps most unlikely of its claimants, the Taliban. Uh, Mullah Omar, not otherwise known as a lover of bling and, uh, uh, and shiny objects, uh, put in a claim before he died uh, on behalf of what uh, uh, he formerly calls the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Uh, so this is, a, this is a diamond which has always meant a great deal more than it's uh, carried more weight than it, than it actually has. It is only the size of a hen's egg. Uh, today it sits in a case dwarfed by the nearby Cullinan diamond, which is um, nearly ten times the size. The Koinor is the size of a large hen's egg. Um, let's have the first slide. Look at it, as it is today. 
Um, but the Cullinan is the size of a kind of football. Uh, and um, when, as happens very frequently, um, South Asians descend on the Tower of London uh, angrily and shout, Chor, Chor, give it back. And Chor means thief. Uh, uh, the, uh, the, uh, they often um, do it at the wrong diamond. They do it at the Cullinan, <laughs> which came from South Africa. Uh, um, but it is, it is something which is a, a huge wound uh, in the psyche of South Asia and something which has come partly because of the, uh, the British themselves setting it up uh, during the reign of Queen Victoria as the uh, prime example of uh, uh, imperial power uh, and, uh, and was uh, presented to the British public as the gift of India. Uh, to the Queen Empress. For that reason, today, uh, it has come to be seen, in a sense, as the archetypal piece of imperial loot, as a symbol for many Indians of all that Britain took from India and extracted from India and exploited India to get hold of. Uh, and it is a very live issue today in Indo-British relations. Uh, so the, uh, as it sits on its plush... Um, purple velvet in the Tower of London, it is still working its dark magic at uh, creating division and dissension. Now, the Koenor, all accounts of the Koenor's history prior to this book um, give versions of its history which derive from a document that now sits in the Indian National Archives. And this was a document produced by a young British civil servant in the 1840s, just after the British had seized the diamond from its Sikh owners. Uh, and uh, Lord Dalhousie, who had taken the diamond from uh, the Sikh Khalsa as uh, part of the surrender terms at the end of the Second Anglo-Sikh War, uh, peace was, uh, was brought to the Punjab uh, on the condition that the Sikhs hand over this diamond to the British. So it was part of the Articles of Surrender. Uh, in the immediate aftermath of that, uh, this young civil servant was commissioned to write a history. And he went round the jewellers of Chandni Chowk, the, the jewellers' area of, of Delhi, and he went to the Red Fort, where the Mughal emperor still lived, interviewed people, and wrote a version of, of the diamond's history, which is uh, a wonderful collection of the mythologies attached to this diamond, uh, but uh, is quite far from what a modern historian would regard as a, a solid piece of historical research. Uh, and uh, one of the objects of writing this book is to distinguish, uh, which isn't very important to do, between what is legend and myth and what is the truth with this diamond. Metcalfe's version of events, just to give you, in a sense, the mythological history of this diamond, has the Koh-i-Noor discovered in bottomless antiquity, deep in the myriad diamond mines of Golconda. It found its way, according to Metcalfe, into the eye of an idol in the Kakatiya dynasty in the Deccan, central India, uh, from where it was looted by the wicked uh, Kalji Turks uh, from, of the Delhi Sultanate, uh, who lost it in turn to the Tukluks, who lost it to the Lodis, who lost it to the Mughals, each time passing through violence and conquest, um, until 
the, one of the last Mughal emperors, Muhammad Shah Rangila, hid it in his turban when the Persians invaded Delhi and Nadir Shah uh, marched into the Red Fort. Unfortunately, again, according to this legend, uh, Nadir Shah and the emperor were both sleeping with the same courtesan, uh, who as part of her pillow talk revealed the hiding place of, the, of this diamond which the emperor wanted to have. And as he was leaving, they, he parted and Muhammad Shah, I've so enjoyed your company. Let us swap turbans as a symbol of our uh, brotherhood. And so it was, according to this legend, uh, that the diamond went off to Iran. Now, these are wonderful stories, but every single item in that uh, uh, menu of its history uh, is, to use a technical term, bullshit. Uh, there is no historical truth at all in any of it. And as far as I can see, and having researched this over quite a period of time, uh, there is not a single solid historical reference to the actual history of this diamond, as opposed to references to large diamonds, which could in fact be one of several other diamonds, such as the Orlov diamond, now uh, the great Mughal diamond originally, now known as the Orlov diamond, which is in the throne of, in the scepter of Catherine the Great in the Kremlin. Uh, or indeed the Daryanur, the sister of the Kohinoor, which is a flat, pink, but very large diamond now in Tehran. Uh, so the first historical reference that I've been able to find that is solidly uh, about this diamond is in 1750 by a biographer of Nadir Shah, the Persian conqueror who took it from India. And he gives an eyewitness account. He said, I saw the Kohinoor, the mountain of light, which is what the... Uh, the, the Ko is mountain, Nur is light in Persian, Trump's favorite language. And uh, um, he describes it as being at the, uh, attached to the head of the peacock in the peacock throne, which was the great Mughal throne, which the Persians stole when they invaded India and took to, uh, took to uh, Meshed. Uh, and uh, before that, we really have no idea uh, at what time it was mined. You can't tell through um, chemical analysis the, or the, the origin of, uh, the, the, of a particular area that the diamond came from, but in all likelihood, it must have come from the Golconda mines, uh, because until the discovery of the New World mines in the 1740s, all the world's diamonds came from India. And um, um, most of the big ones came from the Golconda region. But not from mines, intriguingly. Um, the image that one has of sort of toiling laborers with pickaxes deep under the ground, maybe chained together, working away in King Solomon's mines, has to be replaced instead with a, with a rather nicer image of something closer to the American West during the gold rush, people panning for diamond crystals in the alluvial sands of the Godavari Delta. And uh, until the 19th century, when, when these deposits uh, seem to have been exhausted, throughout history, for about 2,000 years, people would regularly find, uh, in the panning of these soils, tiny octahedral diamond fragments. Um, and these uh, uh, often... So not, not the familiar, flat, brilliant-cut diamond that you buy in a jeweler today for your beloved and your, at your engagement, uh, but instead sort of spiky uh, crystals that sort of poke upwards uh, are not shiny, uh, but are pointed. And uh, these were very popular as rings in Tang, China, and even in Augustan, Rome, uh, 
uh, but were used also for cutting tools. It was recognized early on that this was the hardest substance on Earth. And uh, some uh, historians believe that the pyramids were cut with Indian diamonds and, and so on. Uh, and this was a major export item in ancient India and uh, soon found their way across the globe. So the, the history of diamonds in India is indeed a very ancient one. And, uh, and from these early centuries uh, were highly valued across the world. But in India came to have a sort of sacred value too. And uh, they appear in the early scriptures. Uh, this is a, an illustration of the Bhagavad Puran. Um, and you can see here uh, a man holding a, a, a bright gem. Now, this is the Siamantica gem, usually said to be a diamond, sometimes said to be a ruby. And it is the, the, the gem of the sun god Surya, who comes down to earth during the reign of Krishna. Uh, when a devotee, the king of Dwarka, uh, does pujas, does, does sacrifices and tapasya, penance, uh, on the beach, and the sun comes down and gives him the gem. But the gem is a tricky object. So magnificent is it, so wildly valuable and desirable is it, that people kill for it. And immediately... The diamond goes out into the forest with the king's brother, who is killed by a lion who wants it. The lion is killed by a bear. Krishna has to go back and rescue it. And then he gives it to his father-in-law with disastrous results. Here we have Krishna's father-in-law sitting decapitated uh, while his wives uh, scream and pull their hair up in the upper register uh, because this wicked prince has, has severed his head. Here we have another version of the, of the body lying. Uh, the wife fleeing away on this side. Um, and this idea that you get from as early as the Bhagavad Puran, early centuries AD, that diamonds are not just something which can, you know, are a symbol of prosperity and can be very auspicious, but in the hands of the wrong person can also bring a curse. And this is an idea, the idea of a cursed diamond has its origins in this text and then travels westwards uh, with the Kohinoor in Victorian times begins to appear in Victorian novels like uh, uh, The Moonstone uh, and Lothair by Benjamin Disraeli, and hence finds its way to popular culture like uh, Indiana Jones and so on. Um, and you can trace the passage of this idea of a cursed gem to the Siamantica gem. And very early on, as early as the uh, 18th century, people are beginning to ask, is the Koh-i-Noor the real Siamantica gem? Because as we will see, it also is a gem which leads a trail of bloodshed and destruction behind it. And this image of a, a, a man uh, with a sword uh, creating murder and mayhem to get their hands on this gem is one that repeats itself over and over again in the history of this diamond. Now, in ancient India, gemology was incredibly important. It's the first civilization that produces a real body of literature on gemology. Uh, diamonds were considered to be part of the godhead. There's an elaborate story about the demon Valor uh, killing, uh, being, giving himself up for sacrifice, and where his blood falls, uh, diamonds grow in the earth. Uh, and uh, uh, in ancient India, very strict rules about who could wear what gem. But as you can see from this gorgeous heavenly apsara uh, from Kajurao in central India, 12th century, in ancient Indian courts, Jewelry 
was often as much worn as clothing. Uh, She's very scantily clad, uh, and what she is wearing uh, is as much jewellery as actual textile. Uh, And this was, uh, and it was highly defined. So diamonds, which were the king of the gems as far as the ancient Indians were concerned, uh, were only to be worn by by kings or viziers or the very highest rank. And, And this was laid down very particularly. Now, in the 16th century, the Mughals turn up from Central Asia, from uh, Fargana in what's now Uzbekistan. Uh, we have uh, uh, Babo and his son Humayun in their garden. And they bring to India a whole range of Central Asian practices and, uh, and views and, uh, and languages and music. Uh, but they also bring with them uh, a particular and very different set of ideas about gems. And for the Mughals, diamonds were not the king of gemstones. They liked them. They were very happy to have them and went out of their way to get them. But for them, the greatest stones were the red stones of light, spinels from Badakhshan, something we don't particularly value in our culture today. You don't go out and give your wife a spinel when you get engaged to her. Um, but, uh, uh, and rubies from, uh, uh, from, uh, from Burma. Uh, and again, you know, something valued today, but not considered to be the highest rank. But when Abul Faisal, the biographer of the Emperor Akbar, writes his Aini Akbari, he says very clearly that the first rank of the treasury is reserved for spinels and rubies, red stones of light, which have deep echoes in the poetry of Hafiz and all this wonderful ancient Persian literature. Uh, And the second rank of the treasury is for diamonds, sapphires, emeralds, and pearls. So two different sets of ideas. And and the Mughals, as in so many things, bring these two worlds together. The Indo-Indian, Indic world uh, of ancient India with its own texts and and sets of ideas and aesthetics, and the Central Asian ideas and Persian ideas coming from the, the Mughal heartlands. And the Mughals make a big deal of aesthetics and particularly gems. They love their buildings. They build the Taj. They build the Red Fort. They build these spectacular buildings that anyone who's been to India is familiar with. They also commission the great manuscripts, but they make a big deal of gems. And they're often depicted in their portraits as holding gemstones. This is the young prince uh, uh, Salim, later to be the emperor Jahangir. Uh, here he is in, in old age, being presented more gemstones by his brother-in-law, Asad Khan. Here is the young Shah Jahan holding a turban ornament, uh, a wonderful manuscript from the V&A in London. Uh, and Shah Jahan, of all of them, was the one who not only loved art and loved aesthetics and thought hard about how to, uh, how to uh, collect and beautify uh, his life and his reign, But he was also uh, a king who very seriously thought through how to use art and buildings and gemstones for augmenting the grandeur and the imperial propaganda of the imperial dynasty. And so a building like the Taj Mahal, which he builds for his wife, is a public statement of the magnificence of this dynasty. And... In the same way, he inherits not only all the diamonds that the dynasty have looted from other kings before them or have been presented in these 
magnificent New Year ceremonies when Nowruz, 21st of March, when the Mughals encouraged their noblemen to give them fine gems as a New Year present, in return for which their rank would be decided. So you get this in Jahangir's diaries, these long passages saying, Asad Khan came today and gave me six rubies, a gorgeous spindle from Badakhshan, uh, and five diamonds from Golconda, and I promoted him to the rank of 50,000 horsemen. Uh, and, and it's a very straightforward transaction. If you give the king some fantastic gemstone, you get promoted. And as a result of this, the Mughals' treasury is piling up with more and more of these amazing gems. And Shah Jahan, who loves them, there's a wonderful story told by Friar Manrique, who's a Jesuit from Goa. He comes to see the Mughal, and he's allowed to look at a great banquet take place, presumably from some lattice somewhere in the palace. He peers down. And he says, the most beautiful and lascivious dancing women were brought in to dance with the emperor. Beauties like I have seen nowhere before. But the emperor did not look up once because he'd just been given some diamonds by his brother-in-law. Uh, and he spent the whole meal examining them intently. <laughs> A man who knew his priorities, not necessarily ones we might share, <laughs> but still. <coughs> so Shah Jahan comes up with the idea of ha you know, having inherited this enormous treasury, heaving with these things, and obviously enjoyed living with them and playing with them and, and so on. But he decided to do something with it. And what he does is he builds this. And this is the peacock throne, so-called for these two peacocks on the roof, which is modelled on the throne of Solomon uh, as described in the Quran. Uh, it, these are meant to resemble cedar trees, these, these, these gorgeous pillars, and this is studied. Every one of these is the highlights of the Mughal gem collection. They literally just take all their most valuable gems and shove it on this one throne, uh, which you know, is more like a, a kiosk to us than a throne. It's a, it's, a, uh, it's a massively valuable thing. costs four times the cost of the Taj Mahal to build. Uh, and uh, according to this later eyewitness account from the 1750s, one of these two peacocks had... On it, attached to its head, the Kohinoor. This is the first historical reference that we have. But the Mughals do not themselves mention the Kohinoor. They mention the Timur ruby, which is attached to uh, another of the peacocks, which is the, one of the most famous gems, because they are excited about rubies. Uh, but uh, they don't mention the Kohinoor. Very strange, but almost certainly, if this eyewitness account is to be believed, it was there. Uh, sorry, whoops, gone forward. It was there. Um, sitting on the top, attached to the head. So it stays in the Mughal dynasty until the reign of Muhammad Shah Rangila. Muhammad Shah Rangila is like the sort of Charles II of the Mughals. He is someone who comes after the period of Puritanism of the Emperor Aurangzeb, and he, is, uh, he loves music, he loves women, he loves painting. He's as much an aesthete as his grandfather was a Puritan. And this picture is something that his grandfather, Aurangzeb, would have made him turn in his grave. He is sort of cross-dressing. Uh, the emperor's wearing sort of a semi-women's outfit. She's, he's cavorting around, celebrating a Hindu festival, holy, uh, with women who are playing music, another no-no to a Puritan. Uh, and he's scattering uh, powder 
onto the, 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 the palace women or the courtesans uh, in, as to celebrate a Hindu festival, all of which completely out for the Puritan uh, great-grandfather. But it's his great um, misfortune to live at the same time as another Puritan from Persia, this guy, Nadir Shah. And Nadir Shah, as you can see from his expression here and the, and the slightly sort of muted colouring, uh, is as much a... Um, as much as a rather sort of grim expression, as, a, as different a man from Muhammad Shah as can be imagined. And Nadir Shah is in fact the son of a shepherd, a peasant shepherd, who had risen in the ranks uh, thanks to uh, his amazing military genius. He, um, he overtopples the Safavid dynasty, he takes command of Persia, he defeats the Ottomans, defeats the Russians, and then he comes from Mughal India. Not to conquer it, but merely, as he says in, his, in one uh, letter, to pluck a few golden feathers from the Mughal peacock's tail. In other words, to get some loot. So he comes into Afghanistan, which is then divided in two between Persia and the Mughals. He takes Kandahar, the border city, then takes Kabul, which is the northern capital of the Mughals and then descends the Khyber Pass. And at this point, the Mughals begin to realize something serious is happening. And uh, Muhammad Shah reluctantly leaves his, his music parties and his, uh, uh, his uh, whoring and drinking and rings the alarm bell. And already, under Muhammad Shah, the Mughal Empire has begun to slightly decentralize. But this is the last time it comes together. Nizam al-Mulk, the first Nizam of Hyderabad, brings his army up from Hyderabad in the Deccan. Sadat Ali Khan, who is the Nawab of Avad, brings it from Faizabad in what's now UP. And Muhammad Shah himself leads the main Delhi army. And the three armies converge on the plains of Karnal, north of Delhi. And a million point five men are in the Mughal camp. Um, not just men, men, women, dancing girls, gardeners, places, the whole shebang, but at least 750,000 fighting uh, troops. And in front of them are just 100,000 Persians. But the Mughal army is out of, uh, is, 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 is old-fashioned. It just relies on old-fashioned fa old heavy cavalry charges. Uh, it is uh, out of training uh, and it, it, it's so inefficient it can only move at about two miles a day while the Persians, like the kind of blitzkrieging uh, Nazis, sort of move at sort of 100 miles overnight and can manoeuvre, and the troops are all beautifully trained. And most of all, Nadir Shah has invented the, the exciting military gizmo of his age, which is called the swivel gun, which is really the kind of precursor of a tank. It's a huge, big musket that fires armour-piercing slugs and which, thanks to a tripod, which Nadir Shah himself has invented, can be rest on the, on the neck of a horse uh, and be manoeuvred around a battlefield. In this way, he's got a sort of mobile artillery. Uh, the Mughals know nothing of this. And they're lured out of their encampment, five-mile-long line of glittering horsemen uh, stretch along the plains of Karnal, and they go into a trot, banners and pennants flying in the wind into a gallop, and they're off. Uh, lances levelled. At the very last minute, the light Persian cavalry parts like a curtain and a line of these swivel guns is, is revealed facing them. And these guys charge straight into it. 
Minutes later, the flower of mogul chivalry lies dead on the ground, uh, and it's all over. The next day, Nadir Shah invites Muhammad Shah to dinner, and the idiot goes with only a few bodyguards, and they are disarmed at the end of dinner. And Muhammad Shah is told that he is the guest of Nadir Shah. A week later, they walk together into Delhi. And over the next three months, Muhammad Shah takes a present from his friend. Sorry, Nadir Shah takes a present from his friend, the Mughal Emperor, which consists of 3,000 wagons full of everything that the Mughals have plundered from the rest of India over the last seven or eight generations. And the peacock throne is the most valuable object of all as he takes away with him. The symbol of, 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 of Mughal rule. And at some point, Nadir Shah takes down the two most uh, largest gems from the peacock throne. He takes down the Kohinoor, which he puts on one arm on a bazuband, and the other, a, uh, the Timur ruby, which he wears on his other bicep. Uh, but he doesn't last long. And Nadir Shah is assassinated by his own family. He's going slowly crazier and crazier and more psychotic. Uh, uh, he has his son assassinated and he has his eyeballs brought to him and caught and all this kind of stuff. Usual pyramids of uh, skulls and all that sort of stuff. And uh, his family have him assassinated. And that night, the peacock throne is pulled apart. The, all the, the soldiers go in there and hack at it with battle axes and poke at it with spears and diamonds and, and rubies scattering around the tent in the dark fires starting, mayhem. But one man remains loyal to the family, and this is the chief of his, uh, the imperial bodyguard, Ahmed Shah Abdali. And Ahmed Shah guards the harem overnight, and at least according to his version of events, at dawn, having preserved the royal women from rape and plunder, he is given as a present these two great gems by Nadir Shah's chief wife, Chuki, who has been given charge of them. She hands them over, and Ahmed Shah Abdali rides off to Kandahar with his Afghan uh, fellows. And in Kandahar, he uses this capital plus a, 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 a cash caravan, which he's, he runs into on his way back by pure good fortune, that the armies pay for the year, arriving, trundling up uh, uh, on the same road. He turns it around and goes with it to Kandahar, where he founds a new country, Afghanistan. So for Afghans, the Kohinoor is the kind of founding gem of their dynasty. And they uh, want it back as much as the uh, Indians and the Persians do. So now that uh, Amir Shah Abdali creates his own empire, which grows out of the ruins of the empire of Nadir Shah. But even as he's defeating all these other rulers, his face, soon after he takes the Kohinoor, begins to collapse. He has some terrible separating tumour in the middle of his face. And in, he, so hideous does he become that he covers himself with a golden mask, dotted with his greatest gems, with diamonds and so on. But this doesn't stop the separating wound. And by the end, by the Battle of Panipat, when he defeats his last great enemies, the Marathas, uh, one of the great victories of Indian history, Maggots are dropping out of his nose onto his food as he's eating. Horrible image. So, uh, here he is again. Um, it passes from him to his son, Timur Shah, and from Timur Shah to his son, 
Shashuja, Umunk, uh, who looks like a, a sort of dwarf from The Hobbit, but uh, it's like Gimli or someone. But uh, Shashuja is, uh, wears it when he receives the first British embassy to go to Afghanistan. And there's the first description in English of this gem given by the Scottish ambassador. Uh, whoops, I'm about to create my own little Koinori style disaster here. <laughs> um, uh, Mount Stuart Elphinstone. And he, that's the first time the British get the first glimpse on this arm of Shashuja. But shortly after this, Shashuja loses the throne, having lost a battle, uh, goes off in to try and drum up support in Kashmir, where he's arrested and shoved in a dungeon. Uh, and his wife, um, Muti Begum, goes to the Punjab to the new Sikh ruler, Ranjit Singh, Sheri Punjab, the Lion of the Punjab, um, who does a deal with her. And she says, she says, if you spring my husband from his dungeon in Kashmir and give him his freedom, I will make sure you get the Kohinoor. And Ranjit Singh does that. He sends an expedition to conquer Kashmir. He captures it. Shashuja's left out of the dungeon, brought back to Lahore. And then he says, so where's the diamond? Uh, and Shashuja says, I never said you could have my diamond. Um, so there's a bit of a standoff, and eventually uh, Ranjit Singh begins to torture Shuja's son in front of him. Uh, and Shashuja reluctantly finally agrees to hand over this diamond. So every stage this diamond has moved through bloodshed and violence. But now it's in the Sikh uh, uh, empire. And here you can see uh, Ranjit Singh with a stone attached to his arm as he passes through the bazaars of Lahore. And Ranjit Singh is a remarkable ruler. He runs the... Uh, he, he creates the great Sikh empire. Uh, he pushes back the Afghans who've invaded India for the last 300 years. Uh, much adored, still a legendary figure in India. And while he encourages magnificence in his court, he himself dresses famously with great simplicity, often wearing just a simple white pyjama. But he, on all state occasions, he wears the Kohinoor. Uh, and uh, this is the first time that the Kohinoor, on its own, seems to be worn as an emblem of state. Perhaps for Ranjit Singh, it was a symbol of something Afghan, which he had reclaimed for uh, his homeland. Um, everything, his whole empire was built out of. Uh, the Punjab, which he had taken from the Afghans, and the Kohinoor maybe symbolized this for him. But he, t he wears it in public and makes a big deal of it. Unlike the Mughals, as I say, who, who actually do not refer to the Kohinoor in any sort. So uh, Ranjit Singh wears it all his life, and as he's lying on his deathbed, having been hit by a stroke, he commands that it should be given to the Jagannath Temple at Puri, probably because... Uh, he, like many people, had begun to associate the Kohinoor with the Siamantika gem, that legendary gem that we saw at the beginning of the lecture, over whom Krishna's family fight and, and uh, whose father-in-law is assassinated uh, to get the hands of it. And so similar is the bloody trajectory of the actual historical Kohinoor with this trail of mayhem left by the Siamantika gem that Ranjit Singh decides to give this cursed gem back to Krishna's temple, to Puri. But as Ranjit Singh is lying helpless, 
cut down by a stroke on his deathbed, the stone has disappeared. Uh, and what has happened is that the state treasurer has hidden it. Um, and he wants it to remain with the royal family. He doesn't want it to go off anywhere. He thinks it, it doesn't belong to Ranjit Singh himself as an individual. It belongs now, he believes, to the Sikh empire. And there follows, in the years that follow, this, this sort of roulette wheel of death, the, kind of the, the full power of the, of the stone to create mayhem is unleashed at this point. Top left, we have Karak Singh, who is Ranjit Singh's completely hopeless elder son, drunkard, womanizer, uh, and, when, and he's left in charge of the empire. The, the, Missy Belaram, the treasurer, produces the, the Kohinoor, which is hidden. He gives it to Karak Singh. But even as this is happening, the other half of the court is conspiring to poison Karak Singh because he's such a hopeless idiot. Uh, a, a, a complete blockhead, Emily Eden calls him. In contrast to his father, who everyone admired, who was brilliant. And so they start poisoning Karak Singh with ras comfort, with white lead. Um, and after a year, he's, he, he's separating horrible lesions opening up on his skins, and, and he dies in terrible pain. Uh, opening up the throne to his very talented and brilliant son, Noniha Singh. Uh, but Noniha Singh doesn't last 24 hours as the king. On his way back from his father's funeral, he passes through Hazuribad, the garden which Ranjit Singh built to celebrate his capture of the Kohinoor. And as he's passing under the gateway, mysteriously the gateway collapses on him. Uh, and he's stretched to the... He's stretched still talking and uh, chatting away on a stretcher to the Red Fort. But when his, uh, his wife is brought in an hour later, he's dead with grey matter all over the bed. Uh, and uh, some further act of violence has taken place. And he is, uh, the same day that his father is cremated, he is dead. The Queen Mother, Chand Kaur, locks the gates of the fort, takes the Kohinoor on her arm, but uh, 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 she has, this, the wife of Nanuha Singh is nine months pregnant, and the great hope is it's going to be a son. It is a son, but it's still born. So before long, um, this character, oops, sorry, Sher Singh arrives, this sort of man-spreading, hunky-chunk of a gym-going he-man here, uh, with his sort of uh, spreading out. He comes along, invades Lahore, demands that Chan Kaur steps down. She agrees to, on the condition she's allowed to live as a private citizen in honour. And she goes off back to her palace. A week later, her two ladies' maids, are brushing her hair when they put down the hairbrushes, produce bricks and beat her head in. Sher Singh doesn't last long either, you'll be surprised to hear. Uh, three weeks later, uh, he's sitting in court. He's, he's sort of, you know, GQ man. He's sort of uh, this sort of, sort of big, chunky chap. And his cousins bring in the latest fouling piece for him to see. And oh, bang, whoops! It goes off accidentally in his face and bang, another one goes off too. Uh, and that's the end of Sher Singh. Leaving at the end of this year of mayhem, one man standing, he's not even a, a real man. This is the chubby, sweet, angelic face of Dulip Singh, the youngest son of Ranjit Singh. And he is brought onto the throne as an, as a, an eight-year-old. And the real power behind the throne is his beautiful mother, um, Rani Jindan. 
And Jindan is a, a, one of the great beauties of the Sikh court. And a brilliant, kick-ass Punjabi lady. But she is very low-born. She's the kennel keeper's daughter. And she's a woman, so greatly resented by the men of the court. And over the next couple of years, um, the nobles conspire with each other and with the British East India Company, who are just over the border, and, and there follows these two Sikh wars. Uh, and after the second Sikh war, the East India Company march in for good. And Dulip Singh, in the Article of Surrender in 1849, aged only 10, is forced to sign away. This poor little boy, surrounded by frightening men, made to hand over the diamond to this man, the Marquis of Dalhousie. Uh, who is the, kind of the Boris Johnson of his age. He's this sort of ambitious uh, Etonian, uh, ruthless, and uh, 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 prepared to throw the whole country under the bus for his own ambition. Uh, and uh, he wants the gem for Queen Victoria. He thinks if he can, he's actually the employee of the East India Company. It's not the British government who control India at this stage. It is a private company belonging to its shareholders, one of the world's first corporations and the, the world's first sort of crazy, out-of-control multinational. And uh, Dalhousie is their servant. But when he conquers the Punjab, he takes the land for the company, but he separates out the gem, the Koh-i-Noor, knowing that if he gives it to Queen Victoria, he can, can't fail to become foreign secretary. And so, anyway, it's sent off to England... Initially, I should say, it's given to a man called John Lawrence, who's a rather nice character, rather unusually in this story, which is full of uh, all sorts of dodgy, ambitious, violent men. John Lawrence is a sort of otherworldly evangelical. Couldn't care less about diamonds. And he's given it. He puts it in his pocket and forgets about it. And, and sort of three weeks later, the courier comes. He's the governor of the Punjab. The governor, uh, the, the kind of man from FedEx, knocks on the door and says, uh, "Delivery, sir. Where, where, where's the diamond?" And uh, he sort of does that thing, you know, when you lose your phone or your credit card, he can't find it. And he, you know, ransacks the house, looks under the bed, you know, pulls up the plumbing. Um, no sign of the Koh-i-Noor. He's lost the bloody thing. Uh, and eventually, he sort of grills his manservant. You know, what was I wearing that day? Check the pockets and. The man says, oh, you mean there was a little piece of glass? <laughs> anyway, it's produced from a drawer somewhere and given to the courier, taken to Bombay, and it's put on the uh, ill-named uh, steam sloop Medea, secretly. No one knows it's there. And one day out of Bombay, the first sailor dies, uh, and cholera has broken out on the ship. And one by one, have any of you seen that wonderful um, Werner Herzog movie, uh, uh, Nosferatu, when there's that plague ship which uh, heads off to Amsterdam and just this captain left alive, tethered to the tiller. Uh, similar sort of thing. It nearly makes it to Mauritius, and the Mauritians threatened to blow the ship out of the water if they landed. It was a plague ship turning up. Uh, so it heads on, hits a typhoon, kind of, you know, Hurricane Jose turns up in the story, and, uh, uh, and they, uh, uh, this sort of poor, beaten-up boat arrives in British waters. 
As it arrives in British waters, mysteriously, the Prime Minister, Peel, is thrown from his horse and uh, trampled underfoot and dies on Primrose Hill. Uh, the, the day that it is, uh, as the horse, is, uh, the, the, the courier is bringing it to Queen Victoria, up the road from Portsmouth, a madman comes out of the crowd and cracks Queen Victoria over the head uh, with a cane tipped with, with a metal top. And she receives the cone with a great big black eye. So an, an inauspicious start. But uh, Queen Victoria is not one to be phased by this sort of thing. And so she opens it up for public view, just to cut forward in the story, to two years later, the Great Exhibition, 1851. The Crystal Palace goes up in Hyde Park. <coughs> and the centre of it all is the Koh-i-Noor. Koh-i-Noor is up there. Uh, as the, made by the British themselves into the ultimate symbol of imperial power. And uh, the British show it off as the gift from India. But it's put in a sort of cage as if it might be a kind of wild animal. Uh, and they can't get it right. Albert, who's, who's designed the Great Exhibition, fiddles around trying to get it working. Because it's a big greenhouse, no one can actually see this thing sparkling. It's, it's not... He needs, so he builds a sort of tent around it and puts gas lamps, tries everything to try and bring out the sparkle. Uh, and instead, instead, what he succeeds in doing is creating Britain's first sauna. So one after another, these sort of you know, heavy Victorian ladies with busks and stuff go in faint in front of this diamond. And at the end of it, the decision is made that people are so sort of uh, unimpressed with the Koh-i-Noor, which has been arrived with such fanfare, that they decide to cut it. And, the, and, it, and it's a big difference in aesthetics. The Mughals, like our medieval ancestors, liked cabochons. They liked stones in the round, in their natural shape. Um, while by Victorian times, people liked brilliant cuts. They wanted their diamonds symmetrical and shiny and brilliant. And so it's decided to send the, jeweler off for, uh, the, the jewel off for a recut. But everyone tells them you can't actually do this. They bring in Dr. Brewster, the father of optics, as he's still known, and he sees immediately that there's a great big flaw running through the diamond. And he says it'll go up in a puff of smoke. But anyway, Albert has decided to do this. He finds a guy from Amsterdam who says he can do it. And so these guys are brought into London. And the first cut takes place with the Duke of Wellington, uh, who does the, whose career started in India, who's brought in as an old man to make the first cut. And, well, of course, Wellington dies three days later <laughs> um, and, and doesn't live to see the complete mess that this recut is because uh, it does nearly go up in smoke. Uh, it, it, you can't cut a flawed diamond in this way that they're trying to do. And the diamond which has arrived from India as 190.3 carats ends the recut, a fragment of itself, at 90 carats. More than half has gone. Um, since then, uh, Queen Victoria has worn the gem, uh, but no other reigning monarch has dared. And there is a, uh, the version of the legend which came, of, of the curse which came to be believed by the royal family was it could be worn by a woman, but not by a man. Where this idea comes from is hard to say, uh, because uh, it had never been worn by a woman before, so it's difficult to know which... Uh, uh, what precedent there was for this story. But the, the Victorians loved sort of legends of curses and things. And, uh, so, uh, uh, and Queen Victoria wore it a lot. Poor old Dulip Singh, who had last seen it as a chubby baby, 
becomes her, her, her great associate. And, uh, uh, and she feels rather guilty about this, uh, having taken this from a 10-year-old. And eventually she brings him to her palace on the Isle of Wight, where he's painted by Winterhalter. The two become very close. And he, she produces the recut gem, a fragment of its former self, and says, look, Maharaja, look what I have to show you. Doesn't realize that this has been something which, like kind of Gollum with the Ring of Power, something that has been eating away at, Rad, at Dulip Singh ever since his childhood. And Lady Logan, who's been the ward of Dulip Singh as he's growing up, who's uh, helped him convert to Christianity, as he now is a Sikh, his hair has been cut, I believe that term, um, watches this scene and sees Dulip Singh holding this thing, and he doesn't say anything for a whole very pregnant minute. The Queen's looking at him, and Lady Logan's looking at him, and in Lady Logan's diary account of this, she says, I could see his mind churning. And I didn't know what he was going to do. Was he going to throw it at the queen? Was he going to hurl it out the window? Anything could have happened. And eventually he looks up and says, Your Majesty, let me present to you the Koh-i-Noor. But it isn't his. He signed it away at the age of 10. Uh, and the stone continues to eat away at him. Uh, and in uh, old age, he, he manages to... In old age, in middle age, he manages to reconnect with his mum Rani Jindan, who's now grown old and... Do we have another picture of her as, in, as an old lady? Uh, who's grown old and uh, embittered. And the two try to go back to India and raise the Sikhs against the British Empire. He plans to connect with the Tsar, but the British arrest him in Aden. And poor old Dulip Singh, still crying out for the return of the Koh-i-Noor, dies alone in poverty in a hotel room in Paris. A very, very tragic story. Um, since then, the Queen, uh, no, no ruling monarch has worn it, as I said. Um, here is Victoria. And it sits in the Tower of London. Last let out from the Tower uh, on the Queen Mother's funeral, where it rested in the, in the, in the crown, where it now sits uh, on her coffin. And the next time we may see it out of the Tower of London, if Queen Camilla ever comes to the throne, it will be hers. I have given her a copy of this book. So we will see <laughs> what happens. But uh, if that doesn't finish off the British monarchy, nothing ever will. So thank you. <laughs>